This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. This evening's host, Cerise Howard. Uh, Cerise is the Artistic Director of the Czech and Slovak Film Festival of Australia and is a committee member of the Melbourne Cinematheque and TILDA, Melbourne's Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival. Uh, she's a freelance writer and a film critic who is a long-standing contributor to Senses of Cinema and can regularly be heard on Plato's Cave and Smart Arts on Triple R. Uh, joining Cerise on the Acme Couch tonight is Charlie O'Grady, Fury and Amy Gray, all of whom you'll be introduced to very shortly. Uh, now, the wonderful Eloise Brooke uh, was scheduled to appear tonight and speak on the panel, but due to some very last-minute circumstances, she's unfortunately stuck in Sydney and will no longer be able to join us, which is a shame. Uh, now, Eloise was planning on providing a very specific and much-needed voice to tonight's uh, discussion, and although she'll be sorely missed, we're going to try and touch on as much as the content that she was hoping to cover um, with the other, the other discussions tonight. Uh, so that being said, um, we'd very much like you guys to be part of this conversation as well. So if you had anything to add or if you had any questions for any of the speakers at all during the evening, uh, feel free and comfortable to pop up your hand and have some input yourself. Uh, just a reminder that we do record these sessions for podcasting. So if you do want to ask a question, just pop your hand up and just wait for the mic. It's a pretty small space uh, and everybody can hear each other, but the mic's just for the podcast. Um, the only other little bit of spot of housekeeping is that door's now uh, closed for the evening, so if you need to leave during the session for any reason, uh, there's another exit just here. Uh, but for now, uh, please join me in welcoming Cerise and the three speakers for tonight's panel. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Um, transparent. Uh, all but one of us, I believe, have seen it all. I've only just seen it myself a couple of weeks ago and found it extremely engrossing and infuriating, probably in equal measure. <laughs> uh, the Pfefferman family are a troubled lot. Uh, Maura, uh, the transparent of the title, there is a pun there, it won't be the last pun you hear this evening, I have been assured. <laughs> that is a warning as well as uh, a very real actual threat, I think. <laughs> we have some serious punsters amongst us, so... S sorry. Um, but, uh, yes, transparent. It's, it's been winning awards galore. Geoffrey uh, Tambor has uh, won awards for his portrayal of Maura Pfefferman, and his casting as a trans actor is something that is undoubtedly... as, as a trans uh, character, when he is a cisgendered man, is certainly something that we will be having a yak about this evening. Uh, there might be some differences in opinion on the significance of that casting. There may not. We shall see. Uh, but this whole story of the Pfefferman clan comes from a very real place. Uh, Jill Soloway is the showrunner of Transparent. Uh, her own father transitioned sometime uh, in the course of um, her and her life. Um, and I think that probably caught Jill by surprise. At first, she was already, I think, perhaps by that stage, a very well-known uh, writer, uh, maybe director as well. She's got a, a career that's actually quite terrifyingly accomplished. She was one of the writers of Six Feet Under, and, uh, which is a show I was very fond of. Uh, but I actually knew, didn't know her name at all until I watched this show and did uh, at least a token amount of homework before presenting myself before you this evening. 
So fortunately, uh, wiser folks than myself are here to really dig deeper and deeper into transparent. And um, there, gosh, there's going to be so much uh, to chew over here. And as uh, Sean said, you will be encouraged to participate. Um, but we'll begin. Uh, we'll go to the left of me and the wonderful Charlie O'Grady to my immediate left. He's a playwright, a poet, yes. <laughs> a performer. Yes. <laughs> a all-round good sort and fond of a pun. Again, we apologise in advance. I'm, I'm happy for you to just keep guessing nice things about yeah, me as well. Yeah. <laughs> we can uh, just do that for the full... Al Fancier. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I like a good Al. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this has already proved divisive before we came into the studio. We're trying to get to all know one another. Some of us are fonder of Al's than others. This <laughs> may or may not have any metaphoric significance. As, yet, as an explanation, um, me and Amy have a largely entrenched history because she doesn't like owls and constantly makes a flap about it, so... Uh, <laughs> I'm vilified online. <laughs> no one comes to my aid. <laughs> so I am going to have my work cut out for me this evening, <laughs> keeping these three in line. Uh, it's going to be reasonably free and easy, though, so... Uh, there will be some presentations. I believe, Charlie, you have prepared something. Yes, yeah, um, I brought a PowerPoint. Yes, wonderful. Like a nerd, <laughs> like, a, yeah. like a big old nerd. This chair, it, just, it moves. It's really upsetting. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, do I just like click the, oh, there it is, cool. Um, okay, so what I'm presenting on today is kind of a broad discussion on uh, trans representation in TV and film and like the media more generally uh, and how transparent kind of fits into that. Uh, so essentially what I'm interested in talking about is uh, now that we're at this point, we're sort of in this weird limbo space where things aren't quite as shit as they were, but aren't quite as good as they could be. Uh, and we've come like leaps and bounds from like, you know, your Norman Bates and your Buffalo Bill and like the, the incredibly problematic representations of uh, trans people uh, or people who are gender non-conforming. Um, that kind of came before, and we're reaching this point where we're, you know, taking some fairly good steps. Uh, so what I'm interested in uh, is, in light of that, in light of those steps that we've taken, how do we now uh, define what a good trans text is? Uh, so essentially, this is just going to be like a like a crash course in the. Uh, do's and don'ts of trans representation, and some of this is going to be common sense, some of this a lot of you will already be aware of, but uh, it all bears repeating. Um, yeah, so I kind of divided it all into like 10 categories, and we're going to go through and like weigh transparent up against all of those. Uh, so, the first one, um, only queer in the village is a term I use to refer to the fact that uh, for the most part, there we go. Uh, for the most part, um, trans texts will represent an, an individual, and often that individual is isolated from their community. Um, so the first example, the top image there is from Boy Meets Girl, uh, which is a film about a trans woman who's the woman pictured, also played by a trans actress, which is great, um, and her relationship with her best friend who she falls in love with, and that's a whole big to-do because he's a cis man and la di da um, but uh, the thing uh, that's quite notable about that film uh, is that she uh, professes herself to be quite isolated. Uh, she claims to feel quite alone. Uh, she 
you know, claims that she doesn't have anyone else that she can talk to about these kinds of things. Um, and I think that's, uh, that kind of typifies a lot of trans texts where you know, you've got one trans person, they don't exist within a community of other people like them, they don't know any people like them. Um, and like obviously that, say in the 1980s, uh, would be really typical of a trans experience. But now, uh, you know, 30 years later, we've got the, the internet, which is pretty great. Um, and most of the like trans youth who are growing up now do have access to a lot of uh, really helpful um, kind of like assistance, uh, as well as like a community, whether that community is online or a physical community. Um, so the fact that trans texts represent an individual now has become kind of outdated. Uh, and one of the things that I think it's indicative of is that uh, as a cis-normative society, we fear groups of oppressed people. Like it's fine if it's just one, but if, there's, it's, if it's a group, they might start thinking that you know they've got like rights and stuff. Um, oh, no. So um, oh, I just realised I spelt Mora wrong there. Oh no! Oh no! Okay, it's right the rest of it. Um, so uh, one of the really great things about Transparent uh, is that it doesn't play into that. So obviously Mora has a really uh, wonderful friendship with Marcy. She also meets uh, a number of trans people uh, at the LGBT centre in her. Uh, local area, um, which is, I feel, more uh, representative of what a trans experience is like now because uh, people feel a lot more free to go and find those spaces. Um, so in that sense, uh, we, we give Transparent one point out of ten. Um, it's doing well so far. Um, so number two uh, is that um, all trans texts are basically just like tragedy porn. Um, so uh, I, didn't, I didn't put any of the sad ones on there because they're all kind of like gruesome and I didn't want to like think about them. Um, so there's a happy picture instead. Um, so uh, one of the things about like uh, the use of violence and the use of death uh, in trans texts is that it's used as a regulatory measure uh, for transgression. So you represent uh, someone transgressing a norm, in this case the norm that of the gender binary, um, and then uh, that transgression is then punished. And what that does is, uh, like subconsciously, it uh, consistently sends the idea that being trans is wrong, and you know, trans equals death, um, which is really problematic. Uh, the other thing about uh, the the tragedy porn thing, and the reason why I call it tragedy porn, is because it's a thing that people are kind of titillated by. Uh, it's a thing that kind of in a cis-normative, heteronormative society um, we're a little bit intrigued by, uh, which, again, is really messed up. Um, so the examples I've included there are Boys Don't Cry in the Crying Game, both of which have cry in the title. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> boy, doesn't that... Boy, that, yeah, boded well for me as a as an 18-year-old watching these films like in the process of coming out. Um, so yeah, Boys Don't Cry, obviously, um, based on a true story. Brandon Tina is assaulted and then he's killed. Uh, the Crying Game, uh, trans woman brings a guy home. Uh, he finds out that she has a secret penis and then throws up. Uh, and then she, her hair gets cut off and just like her life goes to shit. Um, 
So that, um, and obviously, like, those representations are important in that a lot of those things do happen to trans people. A lot of uh, trans people do lead really difficult lives, uh, and every trans person will struggle at some point because this is still a very unaccepting world. Um, but I guess it's the question of whether or not you represent uh, what is or, like, what you hope could be. And I feel at the point that we're at that representing what you hope could be uh, and, you know, representing the story where the trans person doesn't die and continues to struggle but, you know, makes it somewhere, I think that has so much more value than just representing, well, this is what happens because, like, we know that that's what happens now. Uh, the question is, like, what's next? Um, so that's another point for transparent. Uh, number three, uh, I always knew I was a terrifying deviant. Um, so this is that um, it's uh, something that kind of crosses over into representation of uh, queerness more generally. Um, but there's this idea in both, the, like, media texts and also, like, our cultural consciousness that if you're trans, you always knew you were trans. Um, so there's no room in that kind of representation for transness, transness that's not been with you since birth. Uh, there's no room for, you know, someone who genuinely didn't know or who has been fluid. Um, and, yeah, as it says there, like, we, you know, we can't kind of conceive of those representations because that would require accepting that gender is fluid and not a binary, um, which, you know, we're not really there yet, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so the other thing that comes into that is that um, trans texts will often rely on kind of like looking into the past of a trans person's life, like looking for signs in that person's past, like, ah, that person wanted to play with the boy toys instead of the girl toys. That's why he's a boy now. Um, which is not always the case, but more importantly, it uh, sends this idea that kind of trans people are like walking, talking little like Lego figures mm -hmm. of gender. Um, that, you know, if you're a trans woman, you automatically like all the hyper feminine things. And if you're a trans man, you automatically like all the hyper masculine things. Uh, and I'll get more into that a little bit later. Um, but that thing of uh, looking into the past of a trans person in media and the fact that we're so fascinated at f um, finding out. For example, in Transparent, um, we were talking about this just before, um, the title sequence is uh, pictures of Maura uh, like growing up and like videos of her um, still you know, presenting as a boy. Um, and that kind of obsession and fixation is actually really damaging because people then take that uh, that they see in text and apply that to the trans people that they know, um, which, like, FYI, don't do that. Just don't. <laughs> don't ask a trans person about, you know, their past and, like, who they used to be and what they used to be like and how they knew and kind of things like that. Um, if they want to tell you, they will tell you. Um, one, one thing that I think is really important to this is the fact that um, having just gone through uh, a trans like medical transition, mm -hmm. the entire psychological assessment is predicated on uh, how much you fit these roles of male and female, and it's yeah. bizarre. It's totally bizarre. It completely erases this idea that you know women can like masculine things and men. Like it, it, it's almost like you're expected to meet this benchmark of cisness yeah. in order to get access to it. So that's like a really, really super important point yeah. because it it does 
make the basis of like the real world experiences yeah. and influence pe like cis people's understanding of what transness is. Yeah. So yeah, this idea that like uh, you know a trans character had like always knew that they were trans because you know everyone loves a tragic backstory actually has a really damaging effect when you put it into the real world because it means that people don't get access to things like HRT or surgery um, or you know. Uh, you know, easy social situations. Mm. Um, so, uh, in terms of transparent, um, I f did find the uh, kind of fixation on Mora's past, as much as it has a, a lot of like value in terms of exposition. I did find that quite trans, uh, quite problematic. I shouldn't say things while looking at other words. <laughs> um, oh gosh. Um, so for that, I haven't given transparent a point. Um, there's a little question mark there, uh, which will become a little bit more clear as we go. Uh, so number four follows on really well from what we were just talking about, is that idea of like, have you had the surgery? Um, so what this refers to is like medicalization of trans narratives. Um, and again, as we were saying, um, it's, it's this thing where we require trans bodies to kind of conform to how we see bodies as needing to be, like masculine body, feminine body. Um, and again, as I said before, that also means that uh, trans people are kind of told that they need to embody the stereotypes of their identified gender. Uh, so some examples of that are uh, Girls Lost, which is a Swedish film. Um, <laughs> Pronounced exactly like that. Yeah. Yes, exactly like that. Um, uh, so the, pre the premise of this film, it's actually a really beautiful premise. Um, these three uh, assigned female at birth people uh, drink the juice of this flower that's in uh, the house of, the greenhouse of one of their dead mothers. Um, <laughs> uh, and they drink the juice of this flower and then they become like assigned male at birth people um, for a night. Uh, one of them ends up identifying as a trans man, uh, and he kind of gets addicted to this um, flower juice thing. Uh, but the thing that fits into this is the fact that, like, the way that his uh, masculinity is demonstrated is because uh, he becomes increasingly more violent. So it's this idea that, mas like, violence is inherently masculine. Uh, and as a trans man, then you end up also being inherently masculine, which is not how it works. It may work like that for some people, but those people are dicks. So, um, so other examples of like that kind of medicalization and really kind of uh, reinforcing binary are Trans America, which is the one pictured Felicity Huffman. Um, that entire film is is a road trip so that she can transition. Uh, Orange is the New Black, which I will talk about a little bit more in a second. Uh, Glee, has anyone seen that episode of Glee where Coach Beast comes out as a trans man? Yes, I've seen that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it just kind of comes out of nowhere, and then he's like, yeah, I'm going to go get the surgeries next week. Um, <laughs> which does all going to happen right yeah, now. It does happen exactly like that, just yep. a week. Yep, just like yep. in a week. Yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, that kind of medicalization and obsession with uh, physically and medically transitioning uh, is really harmful, um, mainly because that's not the 
it's not the only way in which you transition because you also transition socially. Uh, and that's where Transparent comes in because uh, Transparent has a really uh, beautiful understanding of what it is to socially transition, what it is to kind of change the way you interact with people, uh, start interacting with people who knew you before in different ways. Um, there's that really beautiful scene where Maura's friend is teaching her how to sit like a woman and walk like a woman. Um, so things like that are uh, really important to be, like really important to see in a trans text and then for that obviously I've given Transparent another point. Moving on. Uh, there we go. Um, so it's not about you. Um, is this idea that trans texts by and large kind of focus on everyone else in a trans person's life and how their transition affects them, um, which is kind of how people are, really. Um, it, like, for the most part, if, you know, you, you come out to your parents or whatever, uh, they're going to think about how that affects them. Uh, and their first thing will be like, but I wanted grandparents or whatever. Um, but the thing that that does is it makes trans characters passive in their own narrative. Uh, so they become this kind of center point that everything happens around and everyone's kind of reacting about this thing and you've got your trans character just sort of sitting there having stuff happen to them, uh, which is a really kind of dehumanizing way to tell trans stories. Uh, so the examples I've got there are Dog Day Afternoon, which is Al Pacino and Chris Sarandon, uh, and Al Pacino goes to jail because he's trying to... Uh, like he robs a bank so that Chris Sarandon's character can transition. Uh, 52 Tuesdays, that's the Australian one, uh, which is kind of all about how uh, this trans man's wife and daughter are affected by his being a trans man. Uh, and then From This Day Forward, which is a documentary about exactly the same thing. Um, but what's important about Transparent is that Maura is an active part of her life. Uh, you know, like I said before, we see her going to uh, LGBT uh, center meetings, we see her, you know, meeting trans people, she moves into a place where it's more accessible, like where that community is more accessible for her. Um, and also uh, her children and what they think about what she's doing don't factor in that much to the choices she makes. Um, so she doesn't come out to them in like a, I need approval from you so that I can go do this thing. She comes out to them by saying, this is something I'm doing. Mm. It'd be great if you could accept me, but I'm doing it anyway. Uh, and it's really powerful to see a trans character kind of taking that control over their own life. And again, that's that uh, thing about writing texts based on what you hope could be the case as opposed to what usually is the case. So again, another point for transparent. Uh, yeah, so it's not, it's not all about you but it is all about your gender, um, is that. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, everything in a trans person's existence is assumed to be about their being trans. That happens in real life, and it happens a lot in uh, media representations. So the uh, picture I've got up there is of Sophia Bursette, or Laverne Cox, from Orange is the New Black. Um, and that's a, Orange is the New Black has a really beautiful uh, portrayal of Sophia as a trans woman in a women's prison. Um, it does a lot of really good things. Obviously, trans actress playing a trans character, always great. Uh, but the issue I take with it is that uh, every storyline that that character is given, everything that happens to her, is directly concerned 
with her gender identity. So, you know, you get her backstory of how she ended up in prison. It's because she stole money so she could transition. And then, you know, in the prison, she fights with other women because she's trans. And then, like, there's a plot in, I think, the season, like, third season uh, where her validity as a mother is called into question. Again, uh, purely concerned with her gender identity and uh, her transition. Um, I realized I didn't finish this slide. Gosh, <laughs> I am so unprepared. So very unprepared. Um, so, yeah, so that's, um, again, a really harmful way to uh, portray trans people because uh, it's like you're saying that trans people are just kind of like outlines filled with gender and that that's it, uh, which is not true. Trans people have rich and diverse lives in the same way that everyone else has a rich and diverse life. Uh, and that, I wasn't too sure about where I sat on this issue in terms of transparent, and I hope we can discuss that today, uh, because obviously the show does focus a lot on Aura and her transition, uh, as well as her family. Um, but it does also delve into other parts of her life. Um, so that's got a big question mark next to it. <laughs> Uh, so, number seven is uh, the fact that often uh, transphobes are portrayed as kind of like cartoon villains who are just awful in every way imaginable. Uh, the picture I've got there is David Sarsgaard uh, from Boys Don't Cry, who's the one who kills Brandon Tina. Um, and I will stress that this kind of portrayal is also valuable and helpful in that it is demonstrating very clearly how awful and violent transphobia can be. Um, but the problem for me is that almost all representations of transphobia are on that end of the extreme. Uh, and for me, the reason that transphobes are so scary is that they can be or look like nice people. Uh, they can you know, be friends of yours. Uh, they can be just like, like transphobia can be casual and it can be incredibly violent. But you don't often see that casual transphobia come out in um, the in like media representation. Uh, and that's another really good thing that Transparent does. It represents very um, normal uh, interactions with uh, transphobia, um, which is really good. Uh, moving on. Um, so the converse of that is uh, that um, when transphobia isn't being portrayed as like this cartoonish kind of villainous thing, it's being portrayed as like uh, forgivable because it comes from a place of love. Mm. Um, so it's that, it's that thing of like, oh, you know, I'm only angry because you came out to me because I really love you, which when you put that kind of on paper, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but excusing transphobia in texts um, means that it's easier for us to excuse it in life. So if you have that kind of, um, oh, you know, Maura's family's just, you know, finding it hard to adjust because they, they love her and they, you know, miss the person that they, that they used to know. Um, if you let that uh, kind of idea um, proliferate, it becomes a kind of a fact of life. Uh, that, that, you know, people you love are never going to be able to accept that you're someone different. Um, but this is where it gets interesting, 
uh, and this is kind of where I'm going with this kind of numbered rant, um, is whether or not Transparent does actually apologize for the transphobia of Mora's family. Um, so, for example, uh, misgendering her or, um, you know, making rude comments about, like, being a man in a dress and things like that. Um, so does it apologize for it, or is it just representing transphobia within families for what it is, which is often, you know, messy and often doesn't result in uh, an apology? Um, so for that, I've given Transparent a big old question mark, and I now have no idea how many <laughs> points it's on. Um, maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point of this. Ah. Puns. Trish, play a mystery vagina. Oh, my gosh. Um, I've originally, done this New band name, I've called it. <laughs> Sorry? New band name, mine. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Mystery, mystery <laughs> um, vagina. Originally, because I thought, I thought we weren't allowed to swear in this, so originally it said tricked by your puzzle cunt, uh, which is a reference <laughs> to a comic, which you should all... No, okay, so, like, it's a reference to a comic, and I can't remember the name of the comic writer at the moment, um, which is really unfortunate because I was going to tell you all to Google it, but if you just Googled Puzzle Cunt, you probably wouldn't, <laughs> you probably wouldn't get what you were looking for. Um, Do it. It would be hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Sorry? Do it. It would be hilarious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah. great safe for work uh, Googling material. Um, anyway, so the, <laughs> the, the, the mystery vagina or Puzzle Cunt is the phenomenon where um, transsexuality is portrayed as predatory. Uh, and uh, for the most part, trans texts will uh, portray trans characters kind of like tricking straight cis people into having sex with them. Um, so what that does uh, fairly obviously is um, construct this idea that trans people are deceitful, um, which, again, some of them may be, but those people are dicks. Um, so the, the picture I've got there is of the crying game, which I think I mentioned before. Um, Again, you know, trans woman tricks a cis man into having sex with her, and then he's like, oh my god, you have a penis. <laughs> That's not, that what? <laughs> That's not a vagina? Um, which, yeah, as I said, like, problematic. It happens in Boys Don't Cry, uh, happens in this film, this short film called Brace. Um, oh, and yeah, happens in Ace Ventura, which is actually just a parody of the crying game. Um, I think it's super problematic in the crying game too and that the entire marketing pitch for that film pre-internet was based upon this idea that you did not under any circumstances give away that she the was big trans. Secrets. That yeah. was the amazing yeah, thing that you were yeah. not allowed to spoil for anyone and that's yeah. what the, the success yeah. of that film entirely yeah. hinged upon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, I wouldn't have been... Upon oh. the deceitful trans character. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a plot twist mm. um, and using gender as a plot twist is... <laughs> A just a bad a idea. Like, if it, if it needs to be a plot twist in your trans text, then your text probably needs just some work in terms, yeah, yeah. Of, in terms of narrative. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, that just, that just doesn't sound like a well-written text. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, so uh, Transparent avoids that uh, through Maura uh, being open about her being trans in every way and also by like her being queer, um, which is fantastic because there aren't enough representations of queer trans people, um, which is, yeah, a real shame. Uh, moving on. 
the Jared Leto effect. Uh, this is my favorite one. Can I, um, can I just say, I, I, I have a friend of mine who's like, oh, transparent, I heard of that. Here, Jared Leto auditioned for all the parts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, but only the trans ones. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, that'd be terrible. <laughs> just a, just a film in which it. Jared Leto plays every single trans character. Yeah. Like has conversations with himself as, yeah, okay, that's, yeah, yep. so bad. Um, so, you know, I, I call it the Jared Leto effect, but it's kind of a trend that started more with uh, Felicity Huffman in Transamerica. Uh, and that trend is that playing a trans person wins a lot of Oscars. Mm. Uh, so every, every, every cis person in Hollywood now wants to play trans characters because wins Oscars. Again, because, you know, tragic backstories win Oscars. Um, it's all tied up in each other. Um, so, yeah, so we've got uh, Felicity Huffman, we've got uh, Hilary Swank down the bottom as Brandon Tina, uh, we've got... Um, Old mate Jared Leto, got Eddie Redmayne as the Danish girl, and then we've got um, Jeffrey Tambor as Mora. Uh, so it's this, yeah, it's this idea that um, playing a trans character is an acting exercise, uh, that you play something so beyond your own experience, because who could possibly imagine being a gender other than the one that they were assigned at birth? Who could, who could even conceive of that? <laughs> uh, and that's, that becomes then the ultimate acting exercise, maybe just below playing someone with a disability, which also wins a lot of Oscars. And which also Eddie Raymond did. Yes, which also Eddie <laughs> Raymond did, yeah. I don't think any of the other ones, um, Jared Leto will like next year, uh, probably. Um, <laughs> oh, he's been a drug addict. That was a uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's done all of the sub things. All the tragedy porn. Yeah. Yes, all the tragedy porn. Um, yeah, so like obviously the, the rebuttal to that is that there are no trans actors in Hollywood. Um, and, you know, that's true. There aren't very many famous trans actors, but that's because all of the people on the screen <laughs> yeah. right now played all of the roles that they could have become famous for. Um, so it's, it's this really weird kind of cyclical argument where um, you keep, like, people keep not casting trans people because they're like, oh, we can't, there, there aren't any. It's like, well, no, they're all, they're all there and they all want to watch. Like, I, I, my housemate is a trans man and an actor uh, and is, like, endlessly frustrated that, uh, well, I mean, the only speaking roles he's had thus far have both been trans characters, one of which I wrote. <laughs> so it doesn't really count. Um, but, um, yeah, like, uh, there are people who want to act um, and they're not being given those roles, uh, at which I'll get into a little bit more in a second. Um, but, yeah, what that says is that we, we want trans stories because they're interesting and they're tragic and they're, like, titillating, but we're still uncomfortable with the idea of an actual trans person. So it's easier for us to say, okay, Jared Leto's a man in a dress, he's pretending to be a woman, than uh, there's a trans woman playing a trans woman. Um, because we still, like, we still conceive of trans women as being men in dresses, um, which is awful. Um, and uh, I, as, like, as I understand it, Transparent, uh, the creators of Transparent, some of whom are trans, um, had reasons for wanting to cast Jeffrey Tambor. Uh, and those reasons were related to the fact that, like, uh, Maura begins the show at the very beginning of her transition. Yeah. Um, 
so like largely male presenting for the first couple of episodes and then you know we see her kind of progress further on uh, and their reservation was that if they cast a trans woman uh, then that woman would have had to uh, kind of go back uh, and kind of go, go back to before they passed or before they started transitioning uh, and that they didn't want to put a trans person through that, which I think is a very noble uh, thing to do. But I also would like it if they had given trans women the choice as to whether or not they would have been comfortable. Yeah, I read, I read sorry to interrupt again, I read an interview with Jeffrey Tambor and, and Junkie and, about this, and um, one of the points that he made was the fact that uh, it's quite hard to find 70-year-old trans women, um, let alone 70-year-old trans women who are interested in acting or want to act or want to play this, and, and also who haven't transitioned, so can present in a masculine way. So there was like, whilst usually the argument is complete bullshit, um, you know, I can't find any trans people. Like, there were a specific set of requirements yeah, that, that make fair, this yeah. slightly more legitimate yeah. um, to, to be able mm. to cast that. And yeah. I gather, too, there was a lot of trans affirmative uh, action taken in the casting so, and, yeah. and informing the crew. So. Yeah. yeah, well, there are, yeah, there are a great many trans secondary characters mm. who are mm. all played by trans people. Mm. Um, you could have cast one of them as the... I'm just bitter about it. I'm just bitter. Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, on that, um, as far as I'm concerned, um, the people on this panel may differ, you may differ on that. I feel Transparent could have done better, um, but obviously it, you get into a very murky area in terms of autonomous casting. Mm. I think that's the next slide. Yes, because, um, so all of the things that I've just said, um, all, of the, like, all of the things that you could do badly uh, in representing trans people, um, these are, these are examples of texts that don't. Um, these are examples of texts that uh, have trans people playing trans characters, uh, that don't play into tragedy porn, that don't uh, dwell in the past of a trans character, that don't show them being isolated. Uh, and nobody knows them. Like, nobody really knows uh, what they are. A couple of, uh, two of those were played at um, Mardi Gras Film Festival in Sydney uh, 2015. Uh, that's where I come from. Um, <laughs> one of them is being played at Mardi Gras Film Festival next year. Spruik. We um, screened Kumuhina at the first Tilda, Melbourne's Trans right. and Gender Diverse Film Festival yeah. last year. The second um, Tilda begins tomorrow, people. Hot tip. <laughs> tomorrow. Wins, sold out. Wins. Actually, hot tip. Wins. Saturday and Sunday, not sold out. <laughs> um, yeah, and actually, the, the other really interesting thing about this... Uh, so these were just the ones that I had heard of or could find that um, didn't get too far into those, like, that weren't super-duper problematic and also had trans people in trans roles. Uh, and a lot of them, like, one, two, three, four... Yeah, four out of the seven uh, are all um, concerning trans people of colour. Uh, because uh, the, in particular, the idea that trans people are isolated and the idea that uh, we're really uncomfortable with a middle ground and you would have to be male or female, um, those are all really uh, white cultural ideas. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, Chindis, for example, uh, is set in uh, Cape Verde. Um, it's a documentary, um, but there's a really rich uh, trans and genderqueer community there in the same way with Kumuhina, which is set in Hawaii, 
Uh, Drunk Town's Finest is a Mexican film uh, about a um, Navajo trans woman who wants to be uh, like the woman of the year on the calendars, you know, the, the sexy calendars. Those things, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, and then obviously uh, All About My Mother is a Spanish film. Um, and brilliant. Sorry? Brilliant. Yes. A oh. brilliant film. So good, so good. Um, yeah, so like all of these texts are, a couple of them are um, Carmilla and Couplish, a web series. So they're not really like, you know, they're not on TV yet. Uh, they don't really have any exposure yet. Um, and that's, that's the problem that like these texts that don't play into any of these kind of sensationalist narratives that don't cast, you know, famous cis people who want to win Oscars, um, that, yeah, do, like don't play into tragedy porn um, or don't kind of play by the rules of like how we expect trans people to act. Uh, they just don't get money. They don't get, uh, they don't get money, they don't get attention, they don't get support. Um, which is like a real shame. And that's why we have this like dearth of uh, silly trans texts that, that misrepresent because the ones that are doing it well, we just like, we're not hearing about. Um, so to conclude, um, representing gender nonconformity is a really tricky business because uh, the big question is like whether or not you represent uh, what's real and what's authentic and what does happen, or if you represent kind of a positive, <laughs> it's meant to say positive political message. Uh, it says positive, positive message. Um, <laughs> you, like, do you represent like a political message that's going to change people's minds or uh, change the way that people think about trans issues? Um, like, do you write, as I said before, realistically, or do you write aspirationally? Um, and can your text exist in a vacuum where like, transphobia doesn't exist, uh, or is that ridiculous because transphobia is pervasive and it's everywhere? Um, and also, are we, and by we I mean I, just kind of overthinking this? Um, so they, it, like, obviously there are definite like don't do that things about uh, trans representation. Uh, and some of the examples, I wrote them down because I knew I was going to forget them, uh, about Ray, uh, not. Nah. Uh, Tomboy, which is, has anyone heard about Tomboy? It's a film that's coming out, I think, either this year or next year. Uh, it's got Sigourney Weaver in it, uh, but it's uh, a hitman is captured by an enemy scientist, evil person, I don't know, uh, and uh, given a reassignment surgery. Um, and then, you know, turned into a woman, and then... Oh, my God. Uh, and then he because he still identifies as male, decides to go on this like revenge quest uh, to, to find and kill the scientist that made him into a woman. Um, so that's, that's a film that's going, that's a film that has been made and will be released in the next year. Like that's. <laughs> this is laughter of pure frustration. Yeah, oh, it's laughing so you don't cry. <laughs> laughing so you don't cry. Oh my gosh. Um, or, you know, the other example that I'm assuming you will all have heard of is Stonewall. Which is the film from this year, which fortunately did really, really terribly tanked. in the box office. Yeah. It absolutely yes. tanked. Um, so those are those are all things that are like definitely don't do that. But all of the other texts that I have mentioned today, maybe with the exception of like the Crying Game, have something about them that is either true and realistic, or um, valuable in a political and cultural conversation. Um, 
so like with that in mind, uh, the question of like what does make a good trans text, uh, and the answer to that is that I have no fucking clue. <laughs> yeah. And that's the end of the bit where I talk a lot. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, Charlie O'Grady, everyone. Fabulous. Thank you. Um, okay. Mike, yeah, oh God, uh, we can overthink this. That's what we're here for, frankly. To over, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. So, uh, Fury, would, TV. Would, yeah, would you care to overthink on, on this before we throw to your own presentation too? Do you, do you want to pick um, on any of that without spoiling your own presentation? I, I really like the thread of, the thread of thought, and I share, your, share in your anger of this repeated uh, casting of cis people as mm. trans folk. And a, a lot of people have sort of asked me, like, why, why is that a big deal? And, like, you scratch the surface and it becomes really obvious. First and foremost, these people are already in a position of power being cis compared to trans people. Uh, on top of that, they're profiting off, directly off trans narratives, trans stories, tra trans pain, in essence. So they're commodifying the trans experience so that they can make a lot of profit. And everyone along the line of things is making profit of this. Trans people are not, not benefiting from this, by and large, at all. Um, but on top of that, um, you know, people sort of say that, that great old chestnut. Um, but it's something, you know, at least it's something. You're getting some representation. Uh, to which is like, it's, it's not good enough, really. Um, in particular because uh, it's just that these people can walk away. And it is. it is. It is definitely a fad that's happening at the moment. It's definitely like a trend. And I think it's kind of interesting because um, you saw that with um, uh, sort of mental illness or like learning difficulties. There was a trend of, of films around those. And of course, they were all played by able people. Um, and this will, this will end. It will, it will um, come to an end when all of these narratives are no longer pulling on the heartstrings of the mainstream. People no longer feel empathy for trans people. We'll still be stuck with the death rate. We'll be, still be stuck with being murdered. We'll still be stuck without jobs, without access to healthcare, without you know, access to you know, a, lot of, a lot of privileges to the government, uh, legal representation. And these people who assist will just be able to walk away having taken their profits. And they'll be done with their acting exercise. Exactly, they'll brush their hands of it. If you put a trans person in a trans role, like Laverne Cox, mm -hmm. um, they will continue to work and advocate for trans people. They will continue to support and foster. They, they, they can't walk away from it because it, it literally is their community. Um, and so there's, there's a lot to be said for Casting trans folk in trans roles. Um, a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. sort of my, uh, th that's why I find it so frustrating, I think, that this conversation, you see it time and time again, but they're actors. They're just acting. Surely, like, this is, you know, the best person to play the role, which is ridiculous. Um, I mean, it's ridiculous if you believe in method acting anyways. Yeah. So. Well, I just, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a cis person play a trans character Realistically, yeah, I don't that like, and I, I speak from my uh, position like as a playwright and a director, um, and like occasional not very good actor, um, and like speaking from that position and having seen actors work, uh, and seen like a lot of people act like on stage, um, I genuinely haven't seen a cis person like none of the cis people that have played roles in this, 
Um, I have I seen like genuinely like authentically represent that experience, and it's because like they can't really mm. um, because it's that like kind of that narrow thinking of like. Sorry to, I just, I'm, I realize I'm just insulting cis people now. Um, no, oh, no, gosh. It's because, like, the experience of being a trans person is so nuanced mm. and it's so specific and it, it expresses itself in so mm. many individual and really acute ways that it's understandable that cis people wouldn't get it because, like, the microaggressions that we experience are constant. Yeah. And they shift you without you even noticing it. Yeah. Um, and so it's like even like on a subconscious level, there is just a wall that I think virtually impossible to break through just because of the nature of what it's like yeah. to be trans. Yeah, yeah that's well, totally right. Like, I guess the, yeah, the neat way to describe it is that uh, a cis person playing a trans character will be trans when they need to be. Uh, mm. that they will be trans when the scene calls for transness. Uh, whereas a trans actor will be uh, trans at every single moment of whatever mm. you're filming or whatever you're performing. They will be mm. trans and be performing transness the entire way. But a really curious thing about that, that just uh, it, uh, highlights how problematic this whole area is, is that quest for authenticity are almost invariably woven into these narratives. And so a character mm. often played by a cisgendered actor, actually, as, as <laughs> in Transparent, we see quite a bit of... Uh, more are trying to learn femininity. Um, yeah. So that, that I like to think this show is actually sophisticated enough to be aware that that's not just within the narrative, but it's outside of it as well. And we yeah. are sophisticated enough viewers, I think, too, to go, mm -hmm. hey, we sort of get this. But uh, yeah, it's problematic. It's always going to be problematic. Mm -hmm. I just have a, that bit more respect for a show which I think understands that it's problematic. Yeah. 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 I think there's a, a, a quite a bit of irony as well. Yeah. In yeah. that, in the way that that plays out, yeah. which I hadn't thought of before, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it is very self-aware and transparent, and like transparent is one of the better representations that we can talk about. Mm. But it's just that thing that, like, as you were saying, like it's not good enough. Yeah, um, and it's that thing of like, uh, like the I feel trans communities are slowly uh, refusing to be content with good enough. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of uh, queer communities and a lot of trans communities are saying, well, no, we want more. Like, mm. where's the rest of it? Um, mm. Which is really, really important. And I really hope that, like, that conversation continues beyond this fad, as you say, of, mm. uh, you know, cis people winning Oscars because they cried about gender. And I think it's exciting to see things like Stonewall Tank just yeah. because it sends mm. such a strong message <laughs> to producers. It's also just very satisfying. I mean, it's, it's hugely <laughs> satisfying. Um, yeah, number one rule of writing a show is don't cast your transgender person of colour woman lead as a white cisgender <laughs> male. <laughs> I mean, you'd think that would go without saying, uh, but apparently not. Yeah, so any screenwriters among us is a hot <laughs> tip right there. Uh, just... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just embarrassing. It is, it's mortifying. Yeah. Every it's time I try to talk about Stonewall, I just kind of get caught at, like, <laughs> how that mistake got made. Like, I just, like, did he trip <laughs> onto the script and just, like, scribble? Yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't, uh It's a big ridiculous. budget Hollywood movie. There would have been some testing and, yeah, how did the audience, yeah. Well, we don't, probably didn't even go that far, did they? Roland Emmerich was the director, Independence Day. 
Yeah. For fuck's sake. Yeah. yeah. He, he ruined Godzilla as well, though, uh, which is something close to my ruined oh, Godzilla. Sorry. Sorry. Now he's ruined the Stonewall yeah. riots. Yeah. He must be stopped. Yeah. He, came, he came out with, like, a, a counter-argument that actually everyone was fucking wrong. And <laughs> oh, OK, cool. Sorry, that's good. Yeah, good to um, Did no you really? Yeah, yeah. And, and so, and then, you know, that was backed up by a bunch of drop-the-tea-jerks and... It was, oh, no, no, Stonewall was all white, gay men, no women, no drag queens, no, no transgendered people. No, no, what? No. It's like how, like how much history did you not read? Did you not pick up one book? Not even no. not read, just like willfully ignore. Yeah, because it was yeah. being thrown at him from like mm. all sides. It boggles, it boggles the mind. He ruined Godzilla, that's all I have to yeah. say. <laughs> Didn't he also do the day after tomorrow? <laughs> huh? Didn't he also do the day after tomorrow? I have no idea. Like, ruin the environment? He uh, ruins everything. Just and what we're trying to say is we don't need him in the world. He's a ruiner. I feel like we got off topic. We have. Yeah. <laughs> um, Amy. Yes, Sean. trans actors and actresses playing trans roles on TV versus film, so not so much in Transparent, but in, in TV shows, um, I don't really want to bring up I Am Kate, but even having something like I Am Kate uh, on television, and there's a few supporting roles occasionally on high-profile TV shows, mm. like How to Get Away with Murder, uh, where trans actors are playing trans characters. Mm. Do you see any difference? Who here watches the most? Yeah, the most TV. I watch a lot of film. I don't watch. I watch, <laughs> so I watch TV. a lot. Yeah. But, I, yeah. I just realised in that moment that I'd forgotten two really good ones, uh, which is The Fosters yeah, and Sense8. Yeah. Uh, and I've forgotten those ones because I haven't seen them because I'm a bad trans. Um, <laughs> I just they're the, like the no two. No wrong way to be the, trans. <laughs> but the, like they're the two shows that people keep telling me to watch, and I'm like, oh why? And they're like, oh nothing, you'd like it. And I'm like, there's a trans character in it, isn't there? And they're like, oh no, yeah. So Fosters <laughs> is great because Fosters put out a call saying we're casting a mm. trans man, we want a trans man to play this. Fosters, oh my gosh, I have so much love for the Fosters. Can I just say, it's like seventh heaven if it was queer, right? It's so, it's like super cheesecake, like all like really filled, it's just amazing. But yeah, so um, that was really great. And Sense8 has its flaws, mostly because, I mean, the trans character is sublime. Um, mm. And unlike a lot of the trans narratives, which are all about transitioning or coming out at like, the beginning of the story, Sense8, she's, she's just there and she's just trans and it's not about her transition, it's just her as a person. And she's queer in a relationship with another woman. Like, it's so beautiful. And that's like the kind of the only thing that really, that really sort of talks about that is that um, like the first moment that you kind of see them really bonding is her girlfriend's like basically like, fuck off to a rad femme who's like, you're not a woman. She, and that's when it's like, you first sort of get this feeling of like, oh my gosh, this, this, this relationship's great. Oh my gosh, that's I love so them. Nice. It's great. But yeah, the producer, um, Wachowski's sister. Right, yes. She's super mm -hmm. racist, unfortunately. Really? 
Sorry, sorry about that. She does have dreads, so I mean, it's not a good sign. Um, yeah. But yeah, she, she uh, um, yeah, just as a minor public service announcement, she, she was at a talk and she, she blamed all bad stuff on people of color. So. Uh, Lana Wachowski. Lana Wachowski, really? yeah. She's not. So trans people can be racist too. That's another uh, takeaway from this evening. Nuanced. Yeah. Um, we have gone, yeah. gone slightly <laughs> off topic. Um, yeah. Sorry about that. It does raise the question though. These are all, we're talking about, all about American shows, aren't we? So yep. what about yeah. if we look farther afield? Are we really on top of TV from anywhere else? And Wasn't, isn't there a trans actor joining the cast of Corrie? There, there was, I do recall yeah, that was a yeah, thing yeah, about yeah. two or three years ago, maybe longer ago. Oh, I thought... Uh, longer? Okay, maybe I'm actually getting more and more thorough with my Daily Mail's yeah. secret shame reading. <laughs> um, even though this is recorded, I'll deny ever saying it in public. But um, there's been um, another... An, another. Maybe it's like it's mm. time for them to actually do, start putting in more starlets and, mm. you know, more of their character actors to work behind the bar and things like that. Mm. Um, and they're just sort of... Shuffling the chairs yeah. a bit, but think, yeah. yeah. It's a thing that, like, countries that aren't America and also Australia, because it just kind of doesn't really happen in Australia, uh, have just been quietly doing without yelling about it for a little while. Like, you know, sh shows like Coronation Street have just been like, yeah, there's a trans character. Mm. Ooh, no big deal. Um, like, again, like all of those texts that I mentioned that are um, foreign films or foreign documentaries. Um, it just kind of quietly happens in other places, whereas, like, in the States at the moment, it's happening very, very loudly mm. and, like, with, like, literal hands for hands. Mm. Like, it just, uh, yeah, it's very, yeah, clumsy. It's, it's very performative, do you think? The, it's very American. Like, yeah. Yeah. I just I, yeah. brazen and outspoken and loud and, like... Yeah. Look yeah. at us, we're representing trans people. Yeah. Job Classic done. America, the best. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe other representation on other forms of TV too, not just long form narratives, mm. but I mean, even in Australia long ago, if I'm not mistaken, Carlotta was a regular on Beauty and the Beast? Or yeah. I, I didn't make that up, did I? That was, no, 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 she no. was um, no. She was on Beauty and the Beast. Actually, like, the, the 90s were Carlotta's time, yeah. like especially ABC and Channel 9. Yeah. Um, she was just popping up. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah, she was, was quite a... I mean, she was very famous and... Um, mm. Mm. But she'd be just a, the one? Just one trans person on Australian TV in all that period? Maybe. We don't know. Mm. People lay low back in the olden times. Uh, mm. It's stealth. <laughs> 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 yeah. We're more brazen now. Look out. <laughs> um... Have we, have we covered yours for the moment? Amy, did you have anything you, you were dying to jump into right now? We've already started digressing a bit and moving it around. Or should we... I'll just take it back to Godzilla so I don't... No, we'll <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, should we well, introduce properly uh, next panellist to the left, the wonderful Fury. Now, Fury, they are a... Writer, poet, performer. That was your bio. Hang on. Writer, <laughs> the same, same. Yeah, same, yeah. Same, same. Yeah. 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 Uh, what else did we agree on hastily over a drink before? Troublemaker. Troublemaker. No Alf, good do-gooder. Do-gooder. No, yeah. no good do-gooder. Yeah. Mm. Um, and Al. Pro-Al. Pro-Al, yeah. We're all about Yeah. Amy doesn't think of a hoot, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh. Thank you. 
The sad no, thing is that I'd already heard that before, <laughs> and I still laughed louder than anyone in the room. Um, I need to get my speak up, and the picture on the screen. And screens. lo, and behold. Yes. Mm. This is a pose on the screen mm. that I'm very familiar with. <laughs> <clears throat> no, I don't want to join that. Okay. In Roxane Gay's essay, Not Here to Make Friends, she quotes Lionel Schweiber. This liking business has two components, moral approval and affection. Growing up as a girl, and I do identify myself as a child growing up as a girl, a lot of my experience of the world uh, have been shaped around the desire to be liked. At first, this came through uh, in a puritanical sense. I craved to be the good daughter, constantly making efforts to garner approval from my father. Later, reading Fiesta by Hemingway, I discovered that being liked can be carved from someone. Brett was a fabulous, manipulative character who had the men in her life swooning and falling over, her, over each other to uh, get any modicum of, of reciprocity in their feelings. And she was very much in control of that. I internalized this narrative, and it was the driving force in many of my relationships up until several years ago. If there's anything to be learned from my experiences, it's that the line between narrative fiction and real life is thinner than we give it credit for. So often we take cues from these fictional beings, and so often we feel validation from them in their foibles and learn from their mistakes. I think a big part of the frustration that women have with the greater media's lack of female representation is that women are automatically denied access to their own stories. It's cruel. And when they are represented, they're shallow depictions of women, either bitterly cruel, mentally unwell in such a way that they are devoid of any relatability, or the product of, puritanical, of a puritanical wank, uh, domicile, motherly, submissive. Women that are lauded are often the ones who are just male characters cast as women, physically strong, kick-ass, full of punchy one-liners. For these reasons, I see the unlikable woman as the antithesis of that most loathed phrase, strong female character. Where, the strong, where strong female characters are strong, un unlikable women are complex. Where strong female characters tackle problems by fighting physically, unlikable women are transparent, failing, and human. I brought, if you haven't read this, um, you must. Roxane Gay is phenomenal. <clears throat> In many ways, likability is a very elaborate lie, a performance a code of conduct dictating the proper way to be. Characters who don't follow this code become unlikable. Critics who criticize a character's unlikability cannot necessarily be faulted. They're merely expressing a wider cultural malaise with all things unpleasant, all things that dare to breach the norm of social acceptability. Likability is, is coded into the expectations of women. Nice, polite, kind, compassionate, Women in texts are never allowed to be sharp like Tyrion Lannister, or drunken and promiscuous like Archer, or sociopathic weirdos like Gregory House. Because of this lack of range in our social consciousness, the lack of range exists in the expectations or assumptions or ways in which women can be. In transparent, every woman is dislikable in their own 
cringe-inducing ways. When we first meet Ali, she gifts us the most terrible book idea in existence. Are you my soulmate? She shamelessly uses her parent as a piggy bank because she, in reality, is just a teenager who has grown but not aged. She sleeps with a trans man as some sort of weird expression of acceptance or an attempt to understand what Mora is going through. She processes things through sex. She prioritizes being sexually available even above her own feelings, as shown when her new lover's flatmate says, you must be Stephanie. And even though being visibly quite not cool with it, she sort of passes it off by saying, oh, I am so much better than Stephanie. Ali is so unlikable for me, probably because she is me, or she was me for a long time. Sarah, in my opinion, is not much better. She's clearly in a relationship that is faltering in a big way. Either they're fallen out of love or she's just not finding fulfillment in being a suburban housewife, maybe both. Needless to say, she deals with this atrociously, running away from her problems by turning into a giddy schoolgirl and having an affair with an old flame. I find so, Sarah so incredibly unlikable because she is me, was me for a long time. Tammy, <laughs> don't even get me started on Tammy. <laughs> First of all, like, who the hell would do that to a beautiful house? Um, <laughs> priorities. No, um, Tammy feels manipulative from the outset. She seems completely disinterested in Sarah, uh, but eventually leaves her partner for her. And that just seems shady. Like, what's going on, Tammy? <laughs> that was so cringy. <laughs> she doesn't strike me as honest. Come on, Tammy, say your line. Yes. Um, I really dislike Tammy because she is me, was me for a long time. Josh's girlfriend, Kaya, is delightfully brutal with his weird obsessive nature. She doesn't intend to tell him that she's getting an abortion. She's semi-repulsed at the idea of motherhood, which is in stark contrast to Josh's Yeatsian fantasy. She practically scoffs at his proposal and subsequently asks the record label to fire him. Of everyone, I feel like she's the anti-woman rejecting outright any expectations placed on her, but more than that, an active dismantling of the white knight fantasy that is so constantly pushed on men. She's a blunt example of what happens when overly, the overly romanticized narratives bump up against reality. I don't dislike Kaya, but that's probably because she is me. <laughs> Certainly me now more than ever. Last but not least, and yes, I'm skipping a few, Mora. Uh, I've found that when talking to people about this event and talking about how the characters are dislikable, most people sort of frowned at me when I said that Mora was dislikable. Um, but she is. Despite lamenting how selfish her children are, she spoils Ali. She enables that atrocious behavior and she enables that selfishness. Um, she's got no self-awareness around that and no ownership of uh, how her actions have produced her children. Um, she also plays her children off each other by announcing, for instance, that she's selling the house 
uh, and then suggesting that Sarah is getting it, which of course causes rivalry amongst the children and discontent. The most unlikable factor of Mora, however, and it's also to do with um, her ex-wife, is the fact that she and her ex-wife apparently knew but did nothing about their son's abuse at the hand of, at hands of his babysitter. Even as they all sit down to dinner with each other and the grandson, who just sort of appears, her seeking out Josh, nothing is talked about. It's just this loaded awkwardness. I have another Roxanne Gate quote for you. Oftentimes, a likable character is simply designed as such to show that he or she is one who knows how to play by the rules and cares to be seen as playing by the rules. The likable character, the unlikable character, is generally used to make some greater narrative point. I think that the power and drive by how compelling audiences find shows such as this is less the fact that they have caught on to this zeitgeist and fads of trans narratives that seems to take hold. And more interest, they're more interested in creating characters that you feel you've met before, or you could meet, or you would want to avoid at all costs should you run them into them in a party. They're not parables designed to teach a moralistic lesson, though we as viewers do learn from them and enjoy them. Thank you. They are an obnoxious bunch. It's not even touching on Josh, who is just appalling, 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 appalling. Um, Amy, I know you're just waiting to pounce at this point, aren't you? Opinions, I would wager. Look, I reckon I, the, the unlikable women are fantastic because they give a bit more meat to um, TV. Uh, not just transparent, but also, you know, things like um, enlightenment. Even, like, first season Leslie Nope. I mean, they tried to dial it back a bit in um, subsequent series of um, Parks and Rec, but she was super unlikable. Um, she was super painful. And that was one of, actually, the great things about that character. But it is actually something that is being used more and more. And so I kind of trace it back from you have the emergence of the anti-hero coming from World War I, World War II, um, the kind of cultural artefacts that came out of that, those periods. And then as that went on and started, we started sort of, you know, playing with narratives more, we got into this amazing point where it was, you know, Breaking Bad, it was Hannibal, it was Sopranos, it was, you know, every, every lead character was a fucking douchebag. But we, we still loved them. Mm. Whereas you watch something like um, Enlightenment with Laura Dern, all I do is scream at the fucking TV. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're, but at the same time, you're actually really kind of um, encouraged somewhat to do the same thing with Transparent. Because even though we're getting to a point where we are getting these unlikable women, we are getting these challenging women, these women who aren't in necessarily invested in being likeable and just quick shout out to girls. Um, yeah, I do uh, think of girls a lot during this, particularly like hmm. how my allegiances in girls shifted and my allegiances actually in, in um, Transparent shifted. I hated Josh to start with, but once I sort of found out his back history and I understood, I was like, I'm a, 
I'm a bit more empathetic towards you. But especially in girls, I started off really liking Jessa and really hating um, Shoshana. Mm. And then started really liking Shoshana because she just started coming into her own and calling people out on their shit. Yeah, Shosha's got shit, you know, sorted yeah. out. That is just a terrible tongue twister <laughs> that I'm going to send to a speech therapist. <laughs> but, um, just don't I think had, about it, Serena, it's being recorded. Don't think about that. <laughs> I had 10 years of elocution lessons too, so that's going to play in my mind at 3 o'clock this morning. Um, but, yeah, so the thing is, even though we're actually getting more access to unlikable women, unlikable women who are running TV, you know, main characters in TV shows, things like that, our cultural conditioning is such that we're still actually not fully prepared to embrace them the way we would, mm. um, you Walt know, a Walt or a Tony Soprano or, you know, Hannibal. I love Hannibal. Um, or all these sorts of characters. Unless it's in comedy, because I find things like Arrested Development, like Portia de Rossi's mm. character or um, the mother in Arrested Development, mm. and people love them. Because they're so, they're so, like, they're just so well done. But see, this is the thing. When it's played for laughs, it's, it's mm. that laughing. spoonful it's of honey. When because when it's played for laughs, there's this element inside you. It's like, that's not necessarily real. No, I don't. I disagree with that. Particularly no. for the fact that, um, uh, what's her, I can't remember her name's lost, the mother's name in Arrested Development. Lucille. Lucille. So, she, you know, that thing is like, is this Lucille or is this, you know, a, insert American politician here? The fact that they, they literally are superimposable uh, and it's hilarious to see what Lucille's been said and what, what some, some American... I, I think that it is real and I think that's what makes it funny is that uncomfortableness to it. I think that then, especially when it comes to, you know, US politicians, that's then actually trading caricature for caricature. So it's a balance of the two. Mm. So And so when it comes to uh, apparently plausible setting of, you know, yeah, it is plausible that there is a matriarch that gives, you know, how much is a banana? Here, have $10. Or go see a Star War. Mm. Or things like, yeah, that, that is all possible. But it's way more possible that there's some batshit insane woman who says whatever the fuck she thinks, mm. then runs around kind of burning bridges everywhere and, you know, is the main character of a drama. That, to me, is when it actually... Because the thing is, when it comes to unlikable women, it, it's predicated on a real terror of an uncontrollable woman. Mm. Yeah, and I, and I think that, like, off the back of that, I think the difference between the way we treat unlikable women in comedy and unlikable women in drama is that, like, we like unlikable women in comedy because they're caricatures. Mm -hmm. Because, in general, we like women in everything we watch to be caricatures. Um, like I said mm -hmm. before, kind of like outlines just filled with gender. Um, but then when they become, you know, complex, unlikable people mm. in a drama, it's like, oh, this isn't what I, yeah. this isn't what I make a make a make a sandwich again. Like, yeah. like do something funny, you know. Like it's we're more comfortable with um, women and non cis men generally as caricatures. Yeah, I think this is funny because I know people. I know people like Lucille to the extent oh, that I yeah. watch it, and it's like it's. There's, it's a character, but there's only, it's only, there's so much truth to it. That's what makes it funny. And that's mm. what makes it uncomfortable is the fact that this is a real character. I'm not at all denying oh, it. No. And it's like mm. a solid point, totally refutable. But I think that there's, 
it's more swallowable, but that's what comedy is. Good comedy will make you feel uncomfortable and laugh at the same time. Mm. Yeah. But it's based on exaggerated observations. No, I know people exactly like Lucille. Maybe, maybe that's just me and my very <laughs> specific upbringing. Yes. But... <laughs> So new slash I grew up as white trash. Um, so yeah. Yeah, no, I grew like there are a lot of people around me who are very wealthy and they genuinely do talk like that, as mortified as I am to say. Uh, which is probably why I enjoy Arrested Development because it makes fun of them. <laughs> Just uh, very quickly, who out there finds the Pfeffermans likable? Uh, this family, they're huh. endearing, you do. All of them? Surely, really? Oh, but do, but do you like them? Or do you find them likable? I, I find them likable because they are, they're flawed. I, yeah, I right. really like the mm. fact that they, they seem like real people, which I think is, mm. it's that, that Have you read they're unlikable because they're unlikable. That's literally what it's about. Everyone is unlikable in some way, and so I like that. Yeah, right, mm. yeah. I would totally hang out with Ali. She'll I was drive gonna, me. I was about to say, I think we would get along in real life. You mean? I oh. have had so many housemates who are like Ali and I've I wouldn't want to live with her. No. No, no. No, 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 no. No. And I'd hang out with Maura. Oh, so much. I'd get I probably wouldn't hang out with Sarah. I have got her name down as Amy. No. Is the actress is, who is plays that her. That's, that's is that because name. your name's Amy and you're <laughs> no, 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 no. Actually, I went are. and looked it up that's on the Wikipedias. <laughs> on the Wikipedias. Um, I'm just going to check it on my mobile later, but I'll just change your name to Sarah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I don't, look, I, I am the worst person to ask, oh, who would you hang out with? I'm an introverted writer. My answer is no one. <laughs> I would hang out with my ashtray. <laughs> it would be a good day. <laughs> um, so no. <laughs> no, is, the, is your answer, no. Mm. Uh, narcissism. I mean, this is the, the thing that I find so present in all of these characters. <laughs> and uh, now I've met a few narcissists in my time and have been burnt by more than one of them. <laughs> Severely in one fairly recent instance, and I, I find mm. these people um, challenging. I, I don't think I could stomach their company for long. But then again, in the show, I, I mean, I really don't grasp over its ten episodes what span of time uh, it mm. encompasses. But if their lives really go at that furious a click, I'd find them unendurable to be around, just trying to keep up. They're, it's so much drama. And, and they, all of them only think of themselves. I, I think they would just be appalling human beings to spend um, much more than a little fleeting conversation with at a party. I would then just flee. 
I think, well, I all of them. I constantly look back on this past life. As I said, all of these characters were me at some point. And I'm astounded that I still have friends from that time because I was just such a poorly behaved person. Um, but yeah, they totally put up with it. And I think it's just, it's interesting because it's bringing out our personal taste in people, mm. um, mm. or lack of taste in people entirely. Um, I, it's not that I lack taste. No, as in like I just very, reject very, everyone. Very you don't have a taste. You don't have a taste in people, is what I was trying to say. Like, I don't, don't like, know, I, my no my taste is: Are you behind a monitor? <laughs> Good taste. That's all right. Um, yeah, yeah. I just think most people don't imagine themselves as being the sorts of people who like to keep the company of the self-absorbed, and these people are <laughs> self-absorbed to the power of their own self-absorption. It's terrifying. <laughs> Um, anyway, we could move on to your... Uh, speaking of self-absorption, Amy Gray, everybody. That's a bit rough. Amy and I go way it's back true. so we can be rude to one another. I think it's 15 years or something. Something like that. Yeah. And this evening I was devastated to learn that Amy is not fond of owls. And it's something... There's now... We now have... She was originally going to sit right beside me, I think, and we've had to put the two other panellists between. <laughs> it's torn this whole panel it apart. Has. It has. It's a terrible really rift. Has. Amy, make it all better. Right? Amy is a writer and <laughs> broadcaster and general good sort okay. and another one of these uh, no yeah, good, yeah, do gooders. Ne'er do well, I prefer. Do good nick. Yeah. Mm. So my, my kind of take on all of this is, you know, when we... I'm just going to, like, level the playing field immediately. Family is ugly. Here's a picture of me as a kid looking <laughs> ugly. So um, that, look at those legs, though. I'm sorry. I was I was a, a lower middle class child. They they were two cabbage patch dolls. That was an extreme status declaration there. <laughs> if I were an '80s hip hop rapper, I'd be covered in gold chains. <laughs> Those two cabbage patch dolls were so fucking legit. Um, <laughs> well, we're just we'll, we're gonna leave it at that photo, just so you can notice my '80s bowl cut. I um, love it. I had that last year. That's oh. nice. Oh, isn't it sweet when someone says. <laughs> You know, something you lived through was now their retro thing. That's sweet. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, moving on. This is payment for owls, isn't it? Oh, you bet. <laughs> How could you? <laughs> All right. So, okay, we're going to, like, go, the big bad. Who is the big bad of the series? There's actually quite a few big bads. Um, but one of them is family. And there are so many, you know, stereotypes that we have especially that get kind of, you know, pushed through TV, and they're often there to make us feel inadequate. So, but when we're talking about the Feffman family, everyone's sort of saying, I don't know anyone like that. I wouldn't want to be around people like that. And it's like, shit, I kind of grew up in a family like mm. that. I kind of, I, I, you know, not Jewish, obviously I was, you know, um, Irish Catholic, but neurotic as all hell. Um, pretty much permanently drunk throughout the generations. Um, and, yeah, self-obsessed, narcissistic. <laughs> We're great at party side. <laughs> um, that is if you want your wedding to end up ruined by fistfights, <laughs> dogs jumping on banquet tables to steal food. <laughs> 
Or Christmas dinners where the father shouts at the children, I fucking hate you, I fucking hate you, and oh. the kids yell the same thing back. <laughs> that was actually a really great Christmas, so please don't feel sad. <laughs> um, yeah. Yay! <laughs> it's like Angela's Ashes, but with a laugh track. Um, <laughs> so anyway... There, um, a woman on, um, on the Tweety, she was saying that she loves the Feffmans because it's sort of like reading a Franzen but without feeling stabbed um, simultaneously. <laughs> and I've got to admit, it is actually... It is kind of painful because the, the um, transparent does sort of fall into that TV trend of kind of cringe viewing of how much further can this family go? How much further can they just actually just fall down the shitter and just watch their lives kind of implode? Which is cute because we have a joke in our family that we all have retractable noses because they're so used to us trying to cut them off despite the phase. I'm not saying it's a good joke, I'm just saying it's a fucking accurate one. <laughs> but, um, so for me, the Feffmans are a little bit too... Um, I don't see them as an edgy family. I see them as a little bit too lovey-dovey. It's sort of like, oh, you've got a tender moment in every episode. That's sweet. I don't. And so there I'm probably failing as a writer because I, I'm supposed to be able to look at everything from each angle, but I'm, I'm sort of... I think there's been a lot of transference for people watching this TV show where you, you see the family and you measure yourself against it. Mm. Um, and that's because we are culturally conditioned to view families through the prism of TV. And it's not just your sort of cliched leave it to Beaver or Brady Bunch or whatever. Even Roseanne, these are all culturally conditioning shows that tell us and define for us what it means to be in a family and they provide far more reference points for us than being in a community. So, you know, the dad's occasionally wise, the mother is eternally patient. And these are the kind of the stereotypes that guide us. So, I mean, Transparent doesn't necessarily dodge that stereotype. Like, for all their pratfalling, the Feffmans still, they still come together. They love one another deeply. But there's a bit of an extra edge to it. And so what that edge is is that it actually paints acceptance into a corner and goads it to fight its way out. And it's almost like with, like, a, an action film or you know, sci-fi Doctor Who or something like that, where every week the screenwriters will go, oh, let's put them in an impossible fucking situation where they will most likely die and see what they do. And what they do with... Um, or what I notice with um, this show is that the characters are constantly pushed into a corner to reject each other. And they've got to find a way to kind of come back and have some sort of begrudging acceptance... So, um, you know, the family watches on as Ali flounces from disaster to disaster using light. And I just want to say, Fury actually said before that I reminded them of <laughs> Ali. Not a fan. You said it first! I, I said it, I said it as if it was like you were supposed to come in and say, no, you do not, actually. 
and a friend would know that. I, <laughs> someone who understands social cues would know that, Amy. Cut me some slack. No, you know, whatever. <laughs> anyway, so, like, you know, Ali jumps from disaster to disaster, and she uses, you know, life as a means of uh, performative self-destruction. Sarah's the kind of the model daughter who leaves her seemingly happy, hetero-capitalist normative life of farmers' markets and sexless spouse bickering over baby seats to rekindle a relationship with the alpha swagger Tammy. And then Josh, who's... No-one seems to tie his sexual abuse as a teen to his combined desperate yearning and yet chaotic rejection of commitment. It's just this... Yeah. So, you know, these things happen to the characters and, they're, you know, they're barely actually challenged. Um, there might be a snide remark here or there, but it's still somehow tacitly accepted. Mm. Um, but what is actually great about the show is that instead of, like, oh, we've got to sort this out in a 30-minute episode or here's a three-episode arc... Josh is fine now. Um, no, they're just going to actually let it go on a really, really slow burn. It's kind of frog in water territory and the characters don't actually seem to know that things are amping up and amping up, except that we're just sort of sitting and going, oh. And, you know, the cringe is partly because it would be excruciating to see in real life and we don't want it to happen to us. But it's also just painful to watch someone just sort of, you know, fuck up their life. But, you know, anywho. Um, but the characters in the show are, like, you know, endured. And their, their dysfunction gets a bit of a bite, but never a chew. You know, it does... What it does really well is to put a bunch of characters together that show, at least in my opinion, that families can contain the people we love and hate the most. And perhaps we're just inured, perhaps we're just used to melodrama, or perhaps they're just fuck stains. Speaking of fuck stains, another baby photo. If we can um, get this one up. Did you want to? Yeah. Yeah. Is that going to do it for me? Yeah. Oh, no, here we go. <laughs> so, backstory. <laughs> um, Wait, can we have a re an Arrested Development soundtrack? Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Where's Ron Howard? Um, so, this is me expressing my drama at having to walk with my family. I was six years old. And it was obviously an indignity and I fucking refused it. So I would walk about 20, 30 metres behind them um, with my, you know, my lip trembling, my head bowed, foot kicking dirt, kicking foot kind of thing. And that moment of my drama and self-pity and obsession was so fucking hilarious to them that they would then walk behind me and take photos. <laughs> Um, but your shoes are on point, so it's all okay. Cowboy boots. Mm. That, with shoes. a paisley dress that had smocking. I'm sorry. Peak 80s. Yeah, Maybe you'd it. like to borrow them. Yeah. Yeah. I would, actually. Do you, think, do you think that they would fit? <laughs> that's, no. that's the new retro look. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, but this bullshit action from me <laughs> is, is part of Transparent. And we watch people behave their worst. We watch their bullshit... The characters watch their bullshit and it's just accepted. You know, sometimes you can look at someone with a kind of fleck of disgust in your eye and also... You looked at me when you said that. I did. <laughs> um, and <laughs> We're friends, we go way back. Yeah, no, it's all good. But, you know, but you can also find the love and the humour when they're acting like a complete arse. So it's these dual states of acceptance and rejection that can exist at once. And it's almost like being trench buddies. 
So um, when you just live through constant drama, constant trauma, which is essentially what family is, if you grew up like me. Um, but like, you know, I think for a lot of other people as well, family lives are essentially traumas because people are going through milestones, all that sort of thing. And it's a high state of intimacy and you bond through that. And that's how you get these states of love and hate and disgust and annoyance. And that's what happens with the, the Pfeffermans. And so, you know, they can accept a disquiet revelation about a family member and, and throw it back at them with precision. So like when Maura quietly challenges Ali mm. about whether she'd still be so accepting of Maura um, if she, um, she wasn't financing her. And so in this unique shorthand, we have with the begrudging or otherwise acceptance, each other's family members' frailties can be used even quietly as Maura did before you know, Ali erupted as a really effective weapon. And so the other softly presented but continually persistent theme in Transparent is deceit in the family. So I can give you money, but don't tell your sisters. Mm. Or I can give you money, but don't tell the others. It'll be unfair. Or, you know, don't tell your brother and sister. And it's not always actually... What's really admirable about this is that it goes back to what I really recognise as a very realistic betrayal of deceit, where it's actually, it's not done for kind of hammy villainy or, or open manipulation or, you know, laughs or drama or sentimentality. It's just there's lies in every family. Sometimes they're really big. Mm. Um, but sometimes they're these little small everyday avoidances of actually talking with one another um, further. And, um, and that's actually something that Jill Soloway, the creator, has actually, she said, is really, really interested in. Because when there's a secret, what happens when the secret's revealed? So this goes back, again, it comes back again to identity and acceptance. If I change, will you still love me? Um, if I keep, you know, doing all these things, it's a show's central anxiety. Every revelation, every truth, every deceit, will it result in people leaving? And, you know, Maura's friends even reference this. They don't expect Maura to actually have a, you know, a family at the end of, you know, whatever, you know, transitioning process she feels is best for her. Um, the show's tension is often, you know, built around this. So Maura talking to her family, debuting at the talent show, family funerals, which was just terrible. Um, Amy cheating, Josh just, you know, bouncing around. And Ali's unaware that she's doing the same as Josh because she's so wrapped up in herself. But will they still accept each other? It's actually, you know, yeah, they will. Because most family, you know, members will accept each other. So... I just want to point out, here's another baby photo. Um, this is just me <laughs> hugging my uncle, a man who went by so many assumed names as a welfare cheat and a small-time criminal. <laughs> I actually haven't called him by his real name since I was under the age of 10. Um, some of my favourites were clay modelling. That seriously, <laughs> he, he got through with that. Um, and once he was, he was Robert Edward Klein, so R.E. Klein, recline. Um, but if he really hated the employer, he was Dudley Edward Klein. So he was decline. And these, that's just three. We, like, it was literally, he would call me once a week. I was like, oh, what's your pseudonym this week? 
That, welcome <laughs> to my childhood, by the way. Um, and so, and this photo was taken on what can only be described as a red, a red fern drug den. That's a genital herpes. Yeah, it is. Yeah, he used to have what he called genital herpes parties. Um, where, and let's just all ignore the, the canisters of white powder behind him too. Um, but he would have these um, parties and they would dye, um, they would dye cornflakes green. And they would throw it at each other. Because they're drug heads. Is this like, if you remember The Simpsons where he pretends he has leprosy? and it's just like... Cornflakes? Cornflakes yeah. on his body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like that. Yeah. Yeah, but, right. but genital herpes and not leprosy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But look, I mean, so getting back to acceptance, the, the fact of the matter is, there, there are, I think I'm like seven or eight there, um, so I'd stop doing the not walking with family thing um, and posing in front of genital herpes posters. <laughs> so progress is getting made. But what you're seeing is also there is an innate ability within families to, um, to actually accept each other. And he was telling me a story when he went on a, I think it was like a four-day bender of just like nothing but cocaine because it was 80s. And, um, and then he came down to Melbourne for a funeral and he was about to break apart because it was, you know, bad bender territory. And he, as he described, it was like, oh, there was this little hand in mine and it was you. And then I suddenly felt okay because you accepted me. I was like, well, of course you know, a seven or whatever year old will accept you because she doesn't understand that it's actually not normal to see adults do hard drugs or mm. be taken to biker parties. <laughs> or, and this is probably going to explain the running joke why she once had to sit up all night listening to a bunch of blokes tripping their nuts off on acid talking about why we should all become one with birds. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up, you not totally joking. Totally should, there. though. No, I am. This is like therapy for all of us. But, um, <laughs> so this is like, this is what transparent actually really gets right about families. They're actually filled with really unsuitable people. He's the hero of my fucking childhood, and he is. Oh my god, to call him a ne'er do well is to suggest that it, it's a massive understatement. <laughs> um, he's delightful. You would not want to, want to get on his bad side, and I'm not even talking to you about my grandfather. Um, so we may not know how to keep a hold of these people um, as threatened in every episode of uh, Transparent, but everyone is part of that family, no matter how dysfunctional they are or unconventional. Even the most fucked up person has the capacity for love and attachment. And, you know, often, yes, it's incredibly misguided, um, but fuck it, it's love. And, they, and the, the Feffermans are awkward as fuck, you know, in every single way. The way they eat is awkward. <laughs> yeah, those are rude. Those gigantic spoons. <laughs> the way they fuck is awkward. The way, like, you know, their attempts at doing new things like singing, religious instruction, <laughs> Taking care of the elderly. Um, it's just if, so awkward. Family gatherings, the worst. So, you know, so far, so like every other family, but without the elder abuse. Um, so, but there's a refreshing, there's a refreshing look to the characters who are as amped up, homogeneously gorgeous as dictated by other shows. Mm. Um, it doesn't feel like it's been kind of stained with that Hollywood perfection. 
Um, though I've got to say, and I'm not sure if what everyone else's feelings are about this, do we think the Feffman teenagers are actually too good looking? Because I remember when I was watching it, it was just sort of like, no, you all look like, you know, mm. tiny Kardashians. Mm. I, didn't, I honestly didn't think of it at the time, but now that you mention it, yeah, probably. They haven't grown into their new roses yet, though. That's, uh, oh, that's what it is. Yeah. So, so you think if you're, if you're, you're you know, beautiful of face, if you're a little bit pure? Yeah. Yeah, welcome yeah. to the next childhood picture. <laughs> um, because, you know, there's these things when kids get awkward, they, their parents kind of come in and they try and, you know, make them feel better. Like when my dad got me in my bathers just as my prepubescent pot belly was reaching its ascendancy and decided what was going to make me feel well was to photograph me from below next to a Mitsubishi Magna. <laughs> oh, this picture is gorgeous. How amazing is that picture? That picture I'm is so, amazing. Yeah. If Solway actually really gave a damn about her show, she would have made a time machine and cast me as Ali, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, have we gone from overthinking to oversharing, Amy? <laughs> I don't know, maybe. But, so, transparency shows that a slice of family we don't actually get to see too often in TV. And that's people agitating in confusion and still being accepted. And this isn't the hokey, let's say, brutal, funny things, because deep down we all still love each other, ha, ha, ha. Um, it's, this is writing characters into a corner every single episode and still finding themselves surrounded by a family that loves and accepts them as best they can. Um, and people will tell you that the Feffmans are amped up and that they're brutal, they're saccharine or melodramatic or whatever word they feel like throwing around the wall that day. And they probably are but only because they represent families today and all their enlightened and dumb acceptance and their cruelty and benevolence and, you know, families that love and hate and accept and reject and all at once a monument to pop culture, finally getting complex contradiction and depicting it well, mm. I think, in a TV family setting. But unlike, you know, TV shows, we don't always get that chance to be truly transparent and accepted by our families, and sometimes we have to make our own, and sometimes we have to heal from the families we left behind. But um, I still think it's one of the better representations of um, families <laughs> that you can find in modern TV to date, actually. Mm. And we don't need to have that picture of me up anymore. I really, I really do love that picture, though. It's gorgeous. Oh, right. It may, may not be a great view, but it's, I, think I like I it. I don't mind making myself a kind of a prop for humour. <laughs> yeah. Amy Gray, a prop for humour, everybody. <laughs> My dignity is yours. So, uh, fellow panellists, any disclosures family-wise you'd care to share? A la Amy? Perhaps not so I, much. I think My dad will probably listen to this so now. <laughs> and similarly, Amy, would you like us to have any of that removed from the uh, final... Um, Sean, can we...? No, yeah. no, no. It, it, it oh, will... It yeah. will it streaming. Will... Streaming. Yeah. <laughs> it will stun you all. I'm actually not in contact with my family. So, um, <laughs> except for that uncle. So, um, it, it's all fine. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Like, I agree with you with what, like, what you're saying about the family and the fact that they do feel like a very close-knit group and they, do, they don't feel like they're going to break apart. But that's just like 
not true of most trans like trans people and their families. And and I think that you know they they very much warn more mm. of that, and it's just sort of like they're you know that family is going to go. You're not mm. going to have them, mm. and there's almost a quiet kind of told you so at the talent show. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, does it depict reality for trans families? I mean, Jill Soloway's, you know, basic, basing it on her and her family's experiences, mm. but this is edge case. Mm. But then where's that middle line between, well, here's a family that's actually still sticking together mm. and here's another story that veers into tragedy porn mm. where everything bad happens to trans people and they're always alone yeah. and they're always isolated. So where is that middle ground? I, I think... Oh, sorry, you go. I think it'd be interesting, because they may venture into that in the second season, I think it would be interesting if Maura actually pushes her family away, mm. because in a lot of the trans narratives that I know and the people that I know, albeit they're being children, uh, in order to sort of be okay with their transness and cope with their lives, they've had to reject their parents and be like, if you can't accept me as I am, then I'm, we can't have a relationship. Um, and that usually, and it's weirdly a space of six to, to nine months, that um, the parents then come round to it um, and, and sort of come, come to terms with it and then they reconnect, even though that is difficult, but it like pushes them into sort of just getting into terms with it. Just describe my whole life. Mine too. That's, yeah, that's like weird. this is this that's is weird. it's a thing that happens and it's a really recurring thing. So I think it'd be very interesting if Moore actually does say to her kids, like, you guys are shit. You need to get out of my life and sort your shit out and maybe if you come back. Yeah. And Meantime though, she's on. manipulating all of them. She's gonna oh, yeah. for fear of rejection. So. Yeah. Well yeah, that was yeah. the that yeah. was the thing I was gonna yeah, say. Yeah, like that, that buying and Ali you know, she she kinda throws it back at Ali. It's like, would you still accept me if mm. I didn't bankroll you? Mm. But She's doing it because, like, yeah. she's doing it because she wants Allie to yeah. accept her. Mm. Um, it's that thing where it's like, I, oh, would like, uh, would you, would you still love me if I stopped doing the thing that I'm doing because I want you to love me? Yeah. Like it, yeah, and it's it is that like those small deceptions mm. that are so core to just like. But and they come family. from frailty and need, which is not to say that they're right yeah. or functional. They're not. Mm. Um, but they're understandable. But mm. yeah, they also come from empowerment, wealth, and uh, using your privilege. Yeah. yeah. So maybe in a future season, Mora will somehow um, the wealth will disappear. That would create mm. an interesting scenario. Would she be able to manipulate anyone anymore? Would she still be so needy, um, so needing to do that? Mm. Will she have won them over? as Mora, and that would be enough, or mm. I suspect not. I suspect the games will continue in mm. season two somehow. I think so mm. too. I suspect they're only just beginning. Mm. I mean, how many bombshells altogether in that first season across 10, 25-minute episodes? Mm. Even that last episode yeah, had at Josh. least one new family member. Uh, was there a pregnancy in there? I can't recall. It was all very... Oh, and um, I think that there's another pregnancy in the second season too. So, yeah, yeah there's, there's... yeah, there's. Who's pregnant? Mm. Oh, I can't... Um, spoilers. But yeah, so yeah, I think that there was there was so much that happened in that, and yes, maybe it's an end of season, you know, uh, conclusion. But actually, no, I think that's just a normal kind of breakneck pace. Mm -hmm. It is breakneck. Again, I really have no idea what passage of time that first season encompasses. Mm. It all seems to be summery weather-wise. Mm. But uh, 
I think yeah. the interesting question when it comes to things like transparent is how much does it represent reality and how much does it represent a family's personal experiences? Because I think that there's actually a huge difference between the two. Mm. And that's probably the, the really interesting space to explore. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.